0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 3 through 9. And so if you're not looking uh, with me in your Bibles, I want to encourage you just to close your eyes and hear this conversation back and forth between the people and God. Verse 3 begins with a question from the people. They say, Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? So if you have ever asked, why does God not notice me? This is the question that they're asking. Then God responds, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and you oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today, that will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down like the head of a bulrush, to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call for help, and the Lord will answer you shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, for those of you that are familiar with how I normally preach in this service, I'm going to have to stay behind the pulpit today because we got so much to cover <laughs> that I, I really got to stick close to my notes. Um, so, But I might have to scoot a little bit because it's just hard for me to stand behind a pulpit. But I... I'm going to do that for us today so that we can really engage Christianity's family tree, and where we are in this particular point in the sermon series. So we have been using this metaphor of a family tree, a tree that provides shelter within her branches for everyone that claims the name Christ. Her roots anchor us to these ancient traditions that shape us even today. For us, this tree, Christianity's family tree, it's a symbol of belonging. Throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has had many different expressions, but we remain connected through our unity in the body of Christ. And so throughout this sermon series, we've been emphasizing our unity together in the body of Christ. And today we've made it to the 1500s and what is known as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther is the person who is credited with beginning the Reformation when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany on October the 31st in the year 1517. So, who was Martin Luther? Well, this is the sketch that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks and want to draw your attention to 1054 A.D. and what we call the Great Schism, The church dividing into the west and into the east. So Luther belonged to the western church. And the headquarters of that church was in Rome. And it was the Catholic or the universal church. And so today we know that church as the Roman Catholic Church. But what Martin Luther would have known that church is as the church. It's the church. That's all the church there is. So he belonged to that church as a young man. Uh, His first aspiration was to be a lawyer, but he later became a monk. And eventually he was ordained a priest in the Roman Catholic Church and served in Germany. What's important to know about Martin Luther was that he never saw himself starting a new church. And if you think about the different denominations that you know about today, you're going to maybe think of a, a church called the Lutheran Church. Well, guess what? He did. Uh, Martin Luther is known as the founder of the Lutheran Church, but that's not what he intended. Instead, he wanted to reform the church that he grew up in, which was the Western Church, what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to bring this church closer to the vision that he saw presented in Scripture. So we might ask the question, so had the church strayed? from this vision of church that is presented in the scriptures, the gospels that tell us about the founder of the church, Jesus Christ, and then the Acts of the Apostles and how that gets lived out, and Paul's letters, and this vision of church that we see in the scripture, had they strayed by the 1500s? Well, we're going to talk about the church of Luther's day, and you can decide for yourself. So by this point, the Western church, uh, Catholicism, had spread throughout Europe. It could be argued that the Pope, who was the head of the church, was the most powerful man in all the world. This particular Pope, Leo X, had dreams of building a huge building, creating a legacy that would be remembered forever. You might have heard of it. It's called St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now that's a big building. And he needed a lot of money, because that's kind of how that goes. When you're building things. So he was leaning hard on the leaders of the church. To help him fund this building. And one of his archbishops. A man named Albrecht. He was the archbishop of Mainz in Germany. He decided that one of the ways the church would raise this money. Was by the sale of what were called indulgences. Sounds like a bad word doesn't it? Mm. Well what are indulgences? So for that we have to understand the, where the church was at this point in time, they felt like they owned the bank account of forgiveness. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, they owned the bank account of forgiveness because in that opening deposit, which was Jesus Christ's death on the cross, enough righteousness was, was deposited into this bank account that forever and all time, the church was the ones who would be able to dispense this. And then, of course, there were the subsequent saints who lived righteous enough lives that they had a little extra left over at the end of their lives. So, so by the point in time where Martin Luther is protesting in the 1500s, the church had built up quite a deposit in their understanding of a lot of extra righteousness, which is important for regular folk like me who need a lot of it. Okay, so, so the question for the church was, so if you have committed sins great enough to land you in what was called purgatory, and we don't have time to go into all that, but Pastor Heather calls it the great waiting room of the church. Okay, so you died, you didn't have enough righteousness to get you on over, so you're just hanging out there. But there's excess righteousness in this bank account that you can purchase for a that's going to help build the big building okay that that's what was going on at that point in time and that purchasing of that extra righteousness was called purchasing an indulgence and that's what luther was protesting this sale of indulgences among other practices that he believed to be wrong in the church in fact pastor heather got to go to germany a couple of years ago it happened to be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the, the Wittenberg door. And they were selling, isn't that interesting? This reproduction of Martin Luther's 95 theses or questions uh, that formed his protest against the Roman Catholic Church. She let me borrow it. I'm trying to be really careful with it. But it's really interesting if you want to look at what was it that Martin Luther was protesting again and against. He would make all of these questions like, "Is it right that?" and he would name his protests in that way. So, about that time, well, actually a little earlier, about 1450, Johannes Gutenberg uh, brought the printing press to Europe. Now that coincided with Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door in such a powerful way that no one could have imagined what happened next. Because now all of a sudden, Martin Luther's 95 theses that he thought he was simply nailing to his local church door, which was what you did when you wanted people to know something, you'd go nail a notice to the church door in the town. Now all of a sudden, it's all over the place. You might say it went viral If you're thinking of kind of the social media, like all of a sudden everybody's seen the video. Because of the printing press. Within a matter of months, the Protestant Reformation had swept across Europe like a raging wildfire. And all of a sudden, all of these people who had been oppressed at the hands of the church, because remember, last week we talked about at this point in time, the church and the state is all the same thing. So there was a lot of oppression going on at the hands of the church. There was a, a deep power structure that was set up to promote uh, people within that structure. And so it was sort of like the ground was, was ripe for this kind of, oh my gosh, we just cannot do this anymore. And that was the beginning of what is known as the Protestant Reformation there are three foundations that Martin Luther brought up in his protest that have become foundational beliefs for us because you know what we are? We're Protestants because we're a part of this line that Martin Luther began by protesting and through this Reformation. And these foundational beliefs, I want to share with you just three of them today, that really mark a difference between uh, what was the Roman Catholic Church and is still today Um, and this, this break that Luther had, and then began a break even after that. Foundational Protestant beliefs. Number one is called the priesthood of all believers. In Luther's day, priests reserved the work of the church for themselves. You could say they protected it, because they really believed that since they were the ones who were set apart by God for ministry, no one else could be trusted to do the work of the church. That that's something that only the priest could do. Luther found this approach to be contrary to what he read in Scripture. He challenged this belief by asserting that, and I quote, we are all consecrated priests through our baptism. And for those of you who are deeply united Methodists, one of the things that, that you'll remember is that we still believe that today. That, that all of us have a call to ministry that is given to us in our baptism. And that the work of God through the church belongs to all of us. So that was really foundational for Luther to assert this. He challenged the idea that a priest must intercede for us in our relationship with God. Instead, he said, we're all priests. And we can approach God directly. That means we can have a personal relationship with God. So this was, this was a huge shift And it's known to us now as the priesthood of all believers, and it's something that we go, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. We all have a role to play in the body of Christ. Second foundational belief, Protestant belief, is called Scripture alone. Martin Luther was using the Latin, and he called it sola scriptura. And what that meant for him was that only Scripture can serve as the foundation of right belief, and therefore, right action. You have to remember that in Luther's day, most people were not literate. There weren't books, so you didn't read. Okay? And as a part of the Reformation, Luther translated the Bible from Latin into the common language of his people, which would have been German. And the printing press, this brand new technology had made it possible then for this Bible to be printed and available to people. And as they're learning to read in Europe, do you know what most people bought as their very first book? The Bible. And and they called it the family Bible. There was one, right? It had all these places in the beginning where you said, you know, this person was born on this day, and this is when they got married, and this is when they were baptized, and, and it was a prized possession of the family, the family Bible. This is a part of what's happening in the Protestant Reformation, making the scripture available for everyone to read on their own. Luther believed that just as we are all priests, we all have the capacity to gain knowledge and inspiration from the scripture for ourselves. And he named scripture as the Christian's compass. I love that, the Christian's compass. He said it's what provides our course, our direction. He believed, again, it was the most important source for right belief. But notice that this was a direct challenge to the Roman Catholic Church because up until that point in history, they had said they were the only source of right belief. That the church decided what was a right belief and what was a wrong belief. And now Luther, with Scripture alone or sola scriptura, is saying, no, 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 no. You, as a priest... As a person who has access to God, you can read the scripture on your own. And you can decide right belief, therefore, right action. Big uh, question of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Finally, it's what we now call justification by faith, but uh, Martin Luther would have called it sola fide or only faith. So, sola scriptura, sola fide. It's kind of the cry of the Reformation. So as Luther studied the scriptures, he believed that the church had lost sight of what he saw as central truths of Christianity. The most important truth for Luther was what he called the doctrine of justification. How is it that someone who is not fully righteous can be made righteous and stand in the presence of a holy God? How does that happen? That act of of making someone who is not righteous Righteous, that's called justification. Okay? Making that person right before God. How does that happen exactly? And so for Luther, he would say that happens by faith alone. He taught that salvation is completely a gift of God's grace, attainable only through faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Luther believed that you never earn justification. You can't do anything to create God, uh, God's justification of you or to make God love you. God already does. And that when you respond to that through faith, you are made right by God. Okay? You can't buy it, as was the case with indulgences. And so it was a huge protest that Martin Luther was saying no you don't need the church and you don't need that bank account because you are justified by faith it's a gift and it always will be are those things that we hold on to today i mean we're yeah yeah those are important parts of our belief and so you ask yourself what was the result of Martin Luther's protest those are some of the results that are very precious to us but this is also the result. Oh my. <laughs> you know, a lot of you have asked me over the years, so why do we have so many denominations? You know what the simple answer is? Martin Luther. Because once you open up that Pandora's box, it's really hard to put it back in, right? And so that's a part of the Protestant Reformation. I want to back up for just a moment and take a closer look at today's scripture because. A lot of times we think that Martin Luther's contribution was his protest. That he was protesting the hypocrisy of the church. But just a brief look at our scripture is going to show us he's not the first person to protest hypocrisy. Lots of people have been doing that throughout the years and continue to do that. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, he's really pushing on this idea of hypocrisy. And, and can you really say that and do something else? If you say that this is who you are and this is what you believe and you act a different way, that's not okay. Those two things need to line up. They need to have what's called integrity. Isaiah is pushing on that. Notice the question he asks. Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord that you would fast and then you would go oppress your worker. How does that happen? Right? He says, no, 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 no. If you're going to please God... Your fast or your religious behavior or sacrifice must result in justice. And he says that that justice looks like the oppressed will go free. The hungry will have bread to eat. And then he says this, the homeless will find a home. Don't we all want that? The homeless to find a home? Among you. Whoa. How many of you all see folks out beside the expressway with their little cup? And we hope they find a home, don't we? Among us. Okay, that's what Isaiah is saying. The fast, the religious behavior, the sacrifice that you're making can't just be in word only. It's actually got to result in something that's transformative for those who need it the most. He says, then and only then when you call to God for help will God answer, here I am. If, if you're not going to put your money where your mouth is, then don't expect God to respond. It, that's what Isaiah says. So, so here's Martin Luther. He's kind of saying the same thing. You know, like, that's not okay. The church shouldn't be in the business of extorting money from people to build a building just because they feel guilty that they can't get to God. We should make that possible for them to get to God. That would be the generous, gracious, and right thing to do. So, his contribution is not his protest. It's actually his insistence that authority rests outside the institution. Hmm. I might ought to say that again. He insists that authority rests outside the institution, outside the church. He truly did believe that Scripture constitutes the only authority for right belief and action as followers of Christ. Which would be great if we all interpreted Scripture the same way. Because then we wouldn't have to worry that we disagree with each other. If Scripture is going to be our foundation for right belief, what happens when I read the Scripture differently than you do? Uh-oh. So guess what happens? All of that. It's both. Right. If the authority is going to rest outside the institution, then there are going to be times where this split and this uh, protesting continues to generate branch after branch after branch. What I read recently is that now they have documented at least thirty-three thousand denominations. Thirty-three thousand. Thank you, Martin Luther. Wow, friends. It's not a split. When Martin Luther nails those 95 theses to the door, it's a splinter. It just, after that. So Phyllis Tickle, a few years ago, like 2007, I think, she wrote this book called The Great Emergence, and she offered a theory in her book that the church goes through a great upheaval every 500 years. The first upheaval she names is when Constantine... Makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and we talked about that the first week of this series. The second great upheaval of the church is in 1054 when the church splits east and west. It's called the Great Schism, and we talked about that as well. The third great upheaval of the church is known as the Protestant Reformation, and we've talked about that today. If she's right, do the math. 500 years, we might be in the middle of another great upheaval. I happen to think she's right. Because with each passing year, I feel more certain that church for my grandchildren will look nothing like the church of my grandparents. And that pains me. At the 940 service, I actually cried. I didn't even expect it. It's just that I love the church so much and, and I love the old hymns of the church and I love all our traditions and I love our buildings and I, I just love what we do. In fact, you could say I kind of put all my eggs in this basket. I'm not prepared to go do anything else for a living. You know, I mean, I need this to work. And I just don't know that it's going to look in 20 years like it looked 20 years prior I think within the course of those 40 or 50 years we're going to see church look very very different so five years ago when I came to be your senior pastor I can tell you that scared me to death because I thought oh my goodness what are we going to do I mean the United Methodist Church is an institution right it's church with a capital C and if that changes what does that look like but I don't know Over five years, I've seen some of those changes, and I see them coming even more rapidly now. And I get kind of excited. You know, I'm like, well, we don't have to do it the way we always did it. You know, the seven last words of the church, we've always done it that way before. Like, you might have, but it doesn't matter now. It's going to be something very, very different. I mean, I still catch my breath, but it's more of an exhilaration this time. Kind of like right before you jump off the high dive. You know, like... Ooh, what if we really are living in the fourth great upheaval of the church? What an opportunity that is for us. What do you think? By nailing his 95 theses to the door, Martin Luther decided to stir it up. He stirred it up, didn't he? In fact, he kind of like ran from the back of the diving board straight off the end. <laughs> Ooh, here we go. Because, friends, there is no way he could have known what was going to happen. When he nailed those 95 theses to the door, he just thought that was going to be something. You know, maybe there will be a little scuttlebutt there in Germany. But, my goodness, it opened it up really all across the known world at that point in time. And here's the thing. He finally got restless enough with the status quo to take a risk on something new. And you know that in your own life, don't you? You finally have to go, okay, we can't do this anymore. We're going to have to do something different. And then, sometimes, right, new things open up in beautiful ways that you could not have expected. Now I realize that makes us uncomfortable, and it should. And I'm OK if we just sit with the discomfort for a while. You've already I've shed my tears. you know I long for the church that I grew up in, the church that I knew. I'm sad. I, I really think we're in the middle of something else. I think it's coming. So I'm kind of excited about that. I ask you this morning the question, what do you think? Do you think we might be in the middle of the fourth great upheaval of the church? And if we are, how does that change your prayers? How does that change your presence, your service, your witness, and the ways that you participate in church? Next week, we're going to talk about how the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, chose to respond to that question. But today, we just kind of need to sit with it and let it be for us. A source of discomfort, but a source of possibility. And in that, God can do great work, I am certain. Amen.